Welcome to the Spirit Anointing the Word, the podcast of Highland Church, Jamaica, New York, with Pastor Subash Cherian. We're so glad to have you with us today, and we're excited about God's Word because it gives us strength and hope for each and every day. Let's listen as Pastor Subash shares this powerful message. Father, once again, we thank you for this time together, particularly on this day, the breaking of the bread, and we seek your grace, we seek your mercy, we seek your presence. Cover us as we look to you, God, with the blood of Jesus and forgive us our sin. We come to God to worship you and to adore you and to, and to give thanks to you. And we've come, O oh God, collectively to seek your presence and seek your favor and the good hand of God upon our lives. Bless your people, Lord, and precious ones that are here and those that are watching, and that we join together in giving glory and honor and power to you, Father, in Jesus Christ our Lord. God's people said, Amen and Amen and Amen. So good we could be here this morning, particularly on this, the Lord's Day. And we want to go back into what we began last Sunday, what would be a a particular special anointing, and that is the Cyrus anointing we talked about, and it leads ultimately to what would be a specifically the Holy Spirit anointing people of God. And I chose this man only because of the grace of God upon this man who isn't actually a Hebrew, uh, using the old, uh, old Testament word, a heathen, a pagan, but of course knew God in a general way as uh, the creator, Elohim, ultimately to know him like the prophet of the old and king and priest and prophet uh, the, whose God was El Elyon, the almighty, everlasting. But he comes to a recognition of God and the purpose of his life. So if you were to read Isaiah chapter 45, reading from verse 1 to 3, we don't have time to run through all of this, just the first verse will tell you about this man. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed. The first thing we talked about last Sunday, is this man who's anointed. And today we want to talk about to Cyrus whose right hand I have holden. Number three, he will subdue nations. He will lose the loins of kings. Then he will uh, go with open the doors, the two-edged sword, the two doors, and then finally he will close. The, the one of the doors will never be shut. And then he goes on ultimately to verse 3, we will do the, the last one is pressures out of darkness. But what I want to do this morning is to cover what would be the hand of the Lord and to recognize what it means particularly as we go into this time of communion. When you think in terms of the hands of God, here is a man that God has said his hand will be holding this man and you find in a way that is unbelievable that he was basically, uh, Isaiah prophesying some 700 years before this man was even born. What is remarkable is uh, exactly as he was portrayed, he becomes the emperor, all of this, and now during the time of Daniel and during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, you find even Esther. Here is this man who follows after Babylon the Nebuchadnezzar's Balthasar, and then comes the fulfillment where the Babylonians would be defeated, and this man comes in, the Persian emperor, and that is Cyrus. 
I would guess that Daniel had taken the scriptures and said to, da to this great king, look, years before you were even conceived or born, years before, here is what this holy script writes about you. From Persia, an emperor, and specifically writes your name, Cyrus. And the fulfillment of his destiny accomplished. And I want you to understand the words way before. What a significant passage. Not only number one, we talked about him being anointed. But number two today, God's hand holds him up. God's hand holds him up. The study of the hands of God is so vast. And when you think about the right hand of God, it is so powerful. But in general, the hand of God, someone said, when you look at it in many variation forms in the Bible, you find something like 168 times. That's a lot of scriptures concerning the hand and the hands of God. But I want us to realize how important this teaching is in the light of what God is saying to a man who is not Jewish, to a man who doesn't come under the old covenant. But I believe that the spirit of Cyrus, so to speak, yours and my name, there's an anointing, and that would be your name and then the anointing, like Cyrus, the anointed one. But I want to specifically say the hand of the Lord was upon Cyrus, and the whole hand of the Lord is upon you, who are anointed of God. First, I want you to realize the numbers of time the word hand of the Lord or the right hand of the Lord is mentioned. And particularly variations of what you call the good hand of God. I like the way when Ezra writes about it, about how he completed the temple. You're going to find he gives you how it comes about. When you turn to particularly Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 9, he said towards the end, the good hand of the Lord, that's what accomplished this purpose. You find not just that one verse in Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 9, but it's also mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 6, Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 9, chapter 7 and verse 14, chapter 7 and verse 25, chapter 7 and verse 28. All of this talking about the hands of God six times, just in this one chapter alone. Several more times, Ezra writes about it. When you turn to Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 8, it was the good hand of the Lord. And the same thing he mentions in verse 18 of chapter 2, that it was the good hand of the Lord. What I want you to understand is when you think about the hand of God, the hand of God was upon the prophets, upon the judges, upon the kings. Look at what you find in the life of Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 46, it was the hand of the Lord that gave him the strength to move on to fulfill his destination when he was sitting down discouraged. And that is the hand of the Lord was upon Elijah. He girded up his loins and ran before him. That is the power of God. Or if you were to look at the prophet Ezekiel, you know how marvelously he speaks about it. In chapter 37 and verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me and took me to a place. And he talks about the valley of the dry bones. He mentions that several times even in chapter 33. But what I like is the prayer of a man in the middle of what you call chronology. 
It's simply names of people that the Hebrews would write in keeping up the chronology that was important for them. And names of people that were born and then people who had died, born, died, born, died, born, died. Until you come to chapter 4 of First Chronicles and verse 10, you find a man by the name of Jabez. Five things he asked for. But look what he asked for the third. First he said, oh, you would bless me indeed. Then he says that you would enlarge my border. And third he says that your hand would be with me. Your hand would be with me. Isn't that an awesome prayer? Jabez's prayer. But I want you to understand this. When you come to Cyrus, he never prayed that prayer. He never asked for anything. Way before he was even conscious. Way before he even had a concept of what it was all about. Hundreds of years ago. Isaiah writes and says, this is what God said, you're anointed. This is what God says, that the hand of God is upon you. He never asked. It is what is predestination. Now I want you to understand, God has called you before the foundation of the world. This is not an afterthought, neither the church an afterthought, but it was in the heart of God way before the creation of the whole world. And yes, long before you were conceived, long before your names were given, God said, I've anointed you, saved you by the blood, washed by the blood, anointed by the Spirit, and my hand is upon you. This is powerful. This is tremendous. So begins this awesome passage of this man whose begins life as what you call a secular. That makes it so important. Is we know how anointing is about. It's all to do with the temple, all to do with in connection with the temple, with worship, with prayer. But here's a man who's a secular man, who's basically doing the business, like you'd say, the United States uh, being president or governor or wherever, in whatever capacity or in your business. And naturally, the anointing. That hand of God is upon him. Can you relate to that in this 21st century? So the hand of God simply speaks of so many different things. Now I want you to realize the most important thing I can think about talking about the power of God. So that right off the bat when you think about the hand of God is simply he bears his hand. He bears his arm, stretches out his hand because he's a powerful God. It is the powerful working of a God. It is simply power, raw power that God stretches hand. Now, when I talk about the hand of God, you and I know that God is a spirit. John chapter 4, 24, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Of course he sees, of course he hears, of course he's conscious, of course he's everywhere at one time. And yet the omnipotent God doesn't have eyes like we do. He's a spirit. The omnipotent, omniscient God doesn't have ears like we do, but hears all things. And when you look in terms of what he is, even when John carried in the spirit 
to that glorious celestial place in heaven. In chapter 4, he tells us the door was open, and then he saw the throne, but he doesn't describe. The one that is seated except to say fire here and colors there and all sorts of things running around, but no description. Because unto him who is invisible, the holy, wise God, and when we talk about God, we understand it in the light of what the ancient scriptures in the Old Testament talks about, that transcendent God. So, of course, the Jewish brethren, the Hebrews, know what's a transcendent God. God who's so far away that nobody can comprehend and cannot understand him. He's way beyond our imagination, way beyond our thoughts. There's no theological in the sense we know God. But yet that transcendent God when you look into the New Testament, becomes an eminent God through Jesus. All of the bog guarded is functioned in the one that is the word became flesh, the divine became flesh, and you know everything about God because the divine son of God begins to tell us who God is, the one who sees him and feels him and touches him and fellowship with him. Yes, we're talking about a transcendent God, and not only that, our Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke chapter, I believe, 24 and verse 39, that the spirit, literally, for the spirit has no flesh, no bones, as you see you have. So we understand when we are looking at this term, it is simply called morpho, basically simply meaning all of the human uh, nature, or what you see, the similitude, uh, described even though we know that God has, will, doesn't have literal eyes and ears like we do, but it's simply bringing it in human term a metaphor for us to realize that God hears, God sees, of course he sees, of course he hears, far beyond our human mind or heart or even our ears or eyes could. But when you look at this term, it comes to so close for us to recognize the God of all grace, the God of all power, the God who is a spirit, and yet there's the hand that stretches out that we can understand to say in terms of the power, the omnipotence of that mighty God. So let me just talk about the hand of God that was upon Cyrus, anointed, the hand of God that is upon you. You're not seeing a hand literally and yet there is in the spirit realm the hand of the mighty God around you. So you realize how the prophet Ezekiel and others said, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And they began to function in the unction of the anointed, the Holy Spirit, because the hand of God was upon them. And the first thing you find is that they are not afraid because they recognize God of power, God who's powerful. He's bared his arm, stretched out his hand, and was upon them, literally carried them, literally covered them, literally put a hedge around them. It all talks about the mighty hand of God. 
So the number one I'm going to talk about is the power of God. Number two, the protection of God, the hand reminds us. Number three, the provision of God, the hand reminds us. Number four, the promise of God, that hand reminds us of. Number five, the principle of God, of the hand of God. Number six, the appearance of what we call, we'll come to that. And number seven, the perennial part. And number eight, simply, is the priority of that hand of God. When you think about the power of God, think with me for a second how powerful it is because the psalmist sings about this in Psalm 98 and verse 1. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. And listen to what he says. His right hand and his holy arm has gotten us the victory. You can sense it. You can resonate with it. Because if you know how God stretched out his hand and helped you his right hand, you're going to say, hallelujah, that's what he did for me. You didn't see a hand come out, but you know in the spirit, his right hand and his holy arm has gotten him the victory. This is the power and the power working of God's right hand. It is so marvelous. It is so marvelous. You know, just to recognize the story of the people of Israel in their bondage in Egypt, and we can understand that in the light of the New Testament, in our bondage to sin, Pharaoh, Satan. It is the mighty hand of God that stretched out, broke loose the chains, and brought us out. And maybe you are here or they're watching and bound by the power of Satan with all sorts of habit, I'm going to tell you that the hand of God can break that chain of addiction in the name of Jesus. What you find is the power, his right hand and his holy arm has gotten us the victory. That is proved out and played out in the life of Israel of the Old Testament and of the Israel of the New Testament. When you look at Exodus, Chapter 3 and verse 19, God is saying, Oh, Pharaoh will not let you until I stretch my mighty hand. He thinks his hand is mighty. Wait till he recognizes my hand. Verse 20 goes on to say, And I'm going to bring you deliverance out of what he calls the outstretched hand of God. I've stretched out my hand. And when you see this played out in the life of the people of Israel, you can see it in a marvelous way. Look at chapter 6 of the book of Exodus and verse 6. Look at in a way in which he says, Moreover, therefore saith the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and great judgment. Look again. At 13 and verse 14, look at what God is saying concerning the redemption. He says in chapter 13 and verse 14, this is what, with an outstretched hand, I will save you. But listen to what it says in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus and verse 6. Glorious that he's going to bring save, save them. Oh Lord, is become glorious in power, the right hand, thy right hand, O oh Lord, has dashed in pieces the enemy all of the pomp and show of pharaoh of the gods of egypt of the might that they gloried in god 
broke it and dashed them into pieces. His hand stretched out to save people of Israel and in doing so plundered the land that had plundered them. You know, what I like so much is the hand of power. And many a times you say, but where's the hand of God? I don't see it. Isaiah tells us in chapter 59 and verse 1, my hand is not short. No, it's not short it, that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but he says your iniquity, your unbelief, in verse 2 says, that's the reason why. But my hand is never shortened. It's long enough. You cannot outbox God. No one can, not even Pharaoh, not the devil. And so he says, his hand is never short. His hand is reaching out to you. And that's why the psalmist says in chapter 31 of Psalm and verse 51, my, 35, my times are in your hand. We got our watch, but he's got our life in his hands. Give the Lord a clap offering. I want you to turn to this passage, and this is a very powerful passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49 and verse 16. Look at what it says here. He says, oh, let's go down to chapter 66 first, uh, Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 14. This is a powerful passage, particularly look at it. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like an herb, and he says, this is what he says, the hand of the Lord shall be known towards his servant. In other words, for you who know him, for you who love him, for you who follow him, his hand is known. You have touched the hands of God, and I don't mean a physical hand, but you sense in the spirit, the hand of the Lord is upon me. The hand of the Lord covers me. The hand of the Lord protects me. While it is what you have known in a positive way, look what it does to the enemies of God. He says, but his fiery indignation towards his enemies, the same hand that is there to help is there to basically smash and to stop the force of darkness. On one side positive, on the other side negative. What hand are you facing today? When we're talking about the right hand, it's just an expression, the right hand of fellowship, or the right hand simply meaning that uh, metaphorically it speaks about, you know, the stronger hand, you don't work with your left hand, you'll be doing double duty on that left hand if you're a right-hander. But what I mean is, there's a lot of meaning to it. Because on the right hand, God is speaking about the pleasures. On the left hand, he's basically talking about judgment. The Lord talked about that the sheep will be on the right hand in the last days, and then the, what you call the goats on the left hand. That would be the last dispersion and the gathering, dividing the two types of people who have walked with God and who have snared and blasphemed against God. But what I want you to realize is the working of and the power of God is displayed in this hand. Number two, I want to go quickly because we need to have the communion. And if you are not prepared yet, for those that are watching, take time to prepare because we will be breaking bread in just a moment. What I want you to understand is the application of this hand of God talks about protection. 
And what I mean is, this is the hand that protects us from the works of the enemy. This is very powerful. This is important. Because it's the hand that leads us, guides us, protects us. And again and again, we see that the psalmist talks about this. For example, he talks about the hand of God that saves. Uh, when you turn to Psalm 20 and verse 6, look at the word he uses. He saves, that is his right hand. The Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear from his holy mountain with the saving strength of his right hand. And then going down to chapter 17 of the same psalm and verse 7, we're talking about the hand that is full of strength. When he talks about this in chapter 17 and verse 7, he says, the hand that is strong and the right hand from which put their trust in, O Lord, you save us by the hand which put their trust from those rights against you. Again in 18 and verse uh, you know, one of these chapter verses, you're going to find God is saying specifically, he is stretching out his hand and he's holding them up from his hand in verse uh, 18 and verse 35. Your right hand has holding me up and thy gentleness has made me great. This all reminds of the grace of God in protecting his people. Number four, I want to talk about the protecting, not only the power of God's hand, the protection of God's hand, the great provision of God's hand. I like the way that Job mentions about that all souls come from him and it is from him we uh, things are wrought from his hand. I like the way he puts it out in Job chapter 12, verse 9 and verse 10. But this is simply meaning that who knows that in all these, the hand of the Lord has wrought this. It is his hand has done all these wonders. And in verse 10 goes on to say, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. You know, when you look at your hand, you know how important, number one, the anointing or your name. Number two, they would ask you after your name, what do you do? It's what you do with your hands. The majority of the times, you're saving your life, uh, basically uh, all of the pay and whatever you get comes from the work of your hand. The psalmist talks about heaven. And in chapter 19 and verse 1, he talks about heaven and then he talks about what would be the working of all hand. And he's talking about the handiwork, everything that he did, has done and still does. He says, the ferment showeth forth his handiwork. That is the great God who continues to work his wonders only when we basically go to him do we realize, my, 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 billions, trillions, I mean this little earth is like a tiny little speck. And when you look at the billions and trillions and you have lost words in counting the constellation, the Milky Ways, the number of stars and he continues to make, we're nowhere in any realm touched the even what would we call the vast heavens beyond man's own eyes or ears or powers or whatever we could invent. Heaven is so vast, and only when we would be with him would we understand the vastness of his handiwork. But here on earth we realize all things were made by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. When you look at what he has done, everything created, from the trees to the fish to the plants to everything else, and then man. We're all his handiwork that simply shows his hand that works things.
We're living in a day when people don't have any handiwork. They hope and pray, oh, USA government, will you give me some money for a handout? My friend, God has given you two hands, and if you are capable and able, you should work with your hands. They only come to assist you when you are wounded. Otherwise, you are wasting your life because your God is a wonder of handiwork, and you should follow him. When I think about protection, when I think about provision, what a marvelous God he is. What a marvelous God he is. I like this beautiful expression, pleasures forevermore. There are those pleasures Satan gives, takes it and abuses it. Any good thing can go out and be abused. That's what Satan does. He comes to kill, to destroy, and to totally usurp everything else. Turn it! But God gives the pleasures, and that is the right thing. Used in the context, they are pleasures of God. In fact, uh, John Piper has written a great book called The Pleasures of God, an awesome book. But this particular word, pleasures of God, comes from a powerful scripture that psalmist talks about. Psalm 16, verse 11. Look what he says. It's very powerful. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand. At thy right hand. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Come to my right hand. There is the pleasures forevermore. Long after this life on this earth ceases, we just began life and you have no time. It is eternity. And what you find is life is merged into eternity and there's no years. Even billions of trillions of years will be merged into eternity. The pleasures of God. Nothing in this world that Satan can offer you. Don't make a pact with the devil as people do in Hollywood. And many at once in the big squares that want to make money, pact with the devil when you have missed out on the real pleasures forevermore. This life will end and that's the end, but there is a life in eternity and that is the greatest awesomeness and what you find are pleasures, true pleasures forever, evermore. This is incredible when you think about this, because Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 10 talks about the hand of God that strengthens. In fact, in Psalm 48 and verse 10, in a similar vein, the psalmist is also saying about this hand is the hand of righteousness. But in Psalm 135, 138, you're going to find the hand of God that stretches out and gives us the provision that is marvelous. I want to go into number four, and that is simply the promise of the hand of God. I want you to recognize something that the psalmist talked about, and that is finds expression in the New Testament over and over again. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ quoted this to the Pharisees when he was challenged about his messiahship. When you turn to Isaiah, uh, when you turn to Psalm 110 and verse 1, listen carefully to what the psalmist is saying. The Lord, that is Yahweh, said unto my Adonai, 
Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord on his left brain is not talking to the Lord on his right brain. It is Adonai being talked to by Yahweh, the Most High God, and he's saying to the one that was the Word became flesh, and he says, sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. What is so remarkable is this is found and this promise is fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ died and he humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a man, went all the way, born into what would be second class, into a society that had been dominated, subjugated by another empire. And he lived life in that awesome, terrible, abject situation and yet noble, righteous life. But that is not in all his teaching and his preaching and his miracle, but the fact he went to the cross for you and for me. And the Bible says God the Father exalted him. Now I want you to realize what Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says, talking about the uniqueness of this son, and then talking about his power when he had himself purged us and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and then goes on to say in verse 13 of the same chapter, the writer of Hebrews says, to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Not to one of them, neither to Michael, nor to Gabriel, nor to the archangels, or the great celestial glory of these divine beings in heaven. No, not to one of them. What you find rather, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1 says, in his priestly duty, look what it says. The sum and substance of this very thing is we have such a high priest who is set on, our, on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That is the sum and substance the Old Testament priests continue to do over and over and over again. They never had time to sit. It was never finito. It's over. But he, once and for all, did that as the completion of all types and shadows of all that were being done. And when he did it, completed, finished, and that's it. So when you turn to chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews and verse 1, uh, verse 12, uh, look at what it says in chapter 10, verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, not the continuing mass Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, once and for all, then sat down at the right hand of Yahweh. So here is what the writer of the Hebrews says, defining these great hall of fame heroes of faith in chapter 11, and then in verse 12 of Hebrew, looking unto Jesus, who for the joy in verse 2 says, it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, sat down, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, sat down at the right hand of God. Amen. I want you to realize this is a tremendous expression of authority, supremacy, and sovereignty. To be at the right hand is telling us at the right hand of Yahweh, at the right hand of Father, is speaking of authority, 
And it simply means he is in all that he is, he's the great intercessor, lifting up the prayers of people every day. Now, I want you to realize something very important in this passage. Number five, and I want to talk about the principle, the principle of the right hand or the principle of the hand. You know, it's remarkable when you look at this powerful principle of the hand of God. How could I put it this way? The Bible brings almost like an evolutionary revelation. It begins with an elevation, the hand of God to the fullest revelation that we are able to get now pieces and then get the whole picture. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 10 talks about the arm, the holy arm of God bared, and talking about the eyes towards the all eyes of the nations, and the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So I want to just break it down. The Lord had bare his holy arm, simply meaning a picture that you can find, a metaphor that explains Yahweh God, the transcendent God, had bared his hand. In the eyes of all nations. When did that happen? When did he bear his hand that the nations could see? We understand in the confines of the history of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, just one group of people. But that was necessary for one reason, to bring the Messiah. Nothing more than that. There's no partiality with God. There's no nepotism with God. He loves all. He reaches out to all. No one is outside the pale of God's salvation. So he says he bared his hand in the eyes of all nations. And then goes on, if you could put back in chapter 52 and verse 10, he says, and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So think about bearing his harm and then coming to the salvation of our God. Connect them together and you find the hand of God actually becomes the salvation of God. The name of Yeshua simply means Yahweh saves the salvation of God. But let me tell you something about the arm. The very next chapter, chapter 53 and verse 1, listen to what it says. Who hath believed our report? Chapter 53 and verse 1. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who? 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 Who had believed our report? Can you believe this? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Ah, I want to know. I want to know. Verse 2 tells us, and talking about this man, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form, no calmness when we shall see him, that there is no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3 goes on to say, continues on the next verse, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrow acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4 goes on to say, surely this arm of God, the salvation of God, had borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, 
He was smitten of God for us and afflicted for our sin. And then goes on to say in verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for iniquity. Surely the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes you are healed. Who is he talking about? The Lamb of God, and who is the Lamb of God? Yeshua, the salvation of God. He is the arm of God extended to the nations of the world. Oh, only to American Christians. Oh, only to Hebrews, my friend. When you think about the arms of God, when you think about the ends of God, he stretches out his hand and he says, come unto me all you are weary and tired and I will give you rest so laden with weight. And then when he was crucified, it is simply hand stretched out, not to one people, one group, or oh, you got to be a Brahmin. Or you got to be a special person. You got to be a priest. You got to be someone ecclesiastical. He stretched his hand to the utmost parts of the world. Almost to say, how much does Yahweh love us? God so loved the world. Stretches out. So loved the world. Jesus stretches out his hand as he died on the cross. The whole world! He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. That is a powerful God. Mighty God. Think about it when we sing about the faithful God and says from his hand we receive our bounties. From his hand we receive our strength. From his hands we receive our health. Now just hold it for a second. Because when you realize this, you find that this is powerful. This is tremendous. We're coming back to Psalm 110 and verse 1. Look again. The psalmist is saying, sit down on the throne until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is answering this to the Pharisees who challenged him. Now he's quoting from the psalmist written by David, and he's asking them, who wrote this? They said, David. And then he said, did David write about himself? And they're a little afraid because David is dead and gone, and he can't be Lord, the Lord saying to him, the Lord. So when you read Matthew chapter 22 and verse 44, He's now saying this, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And then he says, is he talking about David? And they were afraid because David is dead and gone. So then he's talking about his son. But this is what Jesus is referring to about this one who is the arm of God, this one who is sitting on the right hand of God. There's something very important for us to realize when you read this passage, you find this is the hand of God that reaches out to us even today, imploring in such a remarkable way. I know the present Jewish people have denied the Lord Jesus because they just feel this is what the Messiah should be and should do. He should break the cudgels of Rome if he was the Messiah. 
Or if today he's going to break the power that, uh, of all the Palestinians, of all the Arabs and everybody that's against us, and we're going to be first-class citizens, everybody should be over and lower. So that was the reason why he came. No, he came to lift people up and lift them up out of their sin and shame and bring them closer to God. Not exclusively one group for all group. Not just to be, I am the best, I'm the noblest, no one besides me. It's not that. God in his mercy reaches out to us, not because of us, in spite of us, because of his love, grace, lifts up. And God gets the glory. But then I ask, why didn't he break the cudgels and the chain of Rome? He had the power, the Messiah has the power to break through what they would consider the enemies, like we in America would say, yeah, we're praying for God to break the enemy, that is, we're talking about the Middle East, and how futile our minds work. Who's on God's side? That's the most important, not we voted God in. No, my friend, which side are you? God comes in, and I find this amazing. You have in the book of Isaiah the servant, and then you have the king and the Lord. But in the beginning, it was coming as a servant. And what you find is this one that comes with folded hands, almost with a white flag. He comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was not accepted, but why? that whosoever call on the name of the Lord should be saved. He comes almost to say, God is not at war with you. You need to make peace with God. I've come to lay my life that you could find your way home. He came riding on a donkey. And his hands was a flag, a white flag to say, come home. But I want you to understand, the same Lord is going to come back, not riding a donkey. He'll be riding a white stallion with a sword in his hand, and he comes to judge. Between the coming first and the second coming is he reaches out to whomsoever, perhaps someone or the other could still be saved. God is not willing that any perish, the Bible says, but that all should be saved. But it's a matter of person opening his heart to say, God, you're not in rebellion with me. You have put out the carpet. You put out the bridge. You put out that the fill the gap. And I need to come to you. But there comes a day, my friend, when the doors will be closed and no one should blame God. It is each one of us who have refused God. But before he comes as the king of kings, the lord of lords, and a white stallion, think of this one who comes with his hands stretched, reaching out in mercy, reaching out in compassion and has come, come back home to the Father. So I find in this mighty hand, the graceful hand, chapter 19 comes to the culmination when he comes to wage a war against all the forces of darkness. And we're not talking about flesh and blood. We're talking about the demons, the ones that was the pipe piper that brought in so many people, sending them. Hell was never prepared for man. It was prepared for the devil and his cohorts. But he doesn't. Misery loves company, and he's drawing a lot of people out with these false pleasures and false promises 
And sadly, so many people will not hearken unto God's gracious love. I want to say this. When you think about it, there's a very important passage before we go into communion that I want to talk about. That is the hand that reaches out in love, the hand that protects us, the hand that reaches out to put a hedge around us. And when you look at that hand in the flesh, it is a pierced hand. You know, I want us to come back to Zechariah chapter 49 and verse 16. Here is the Lord talking about what he has done. He used the word engraved, Isaiah 49 and verse 16. We'll wait for it because it's important. Uh, i wait for it to come on the screen. Isaiah 49 and verse 16. He says, I've engraved you in the palm of my hand. Behold, I've graven you or engraven you in the palm of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. In other words, your presence is continually before me. Uh, just to get an understanding, the high priest in the Old Testament temple, when he went to do what would be his priestly duty, bringing the cares of the people to God and bringing the message of God to the people, he always carried on his breast the names of the 12 tribes. It was not inscribed into his chest, but he put that on before he went into the holiest of holiest. So when he lifted up his hand, it was like the names of the tribes of Israel was on his chest. All the 12 tribes, as he lifted up his hand in the temple, it was almost to say, in my heart is graven, the names and the tribes of your people have mercy on them. But this is something that God is saying. Behold, look, look what I have done. I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I believe next week is Mother's Day. This is a great message for mothers. If you turn to verse 15, Isaiah 49 and verse 15, look at the picture he gives. Can a woman forget her suckling child? No! That she should not have compassion on the son of a womb? No! And yet there are some miserable mothers who will sell their children for a song, for a drug, for whatever. There are mothers who say, it's not my responsibility, it's the government's responsibility. There are mothers like that. But God says, can a woman forget a suckling child? It's not possible because there is within an etching in the mother's heart. Even though there's an umbilical cord that was broken in the physical, there is something that's unbroken in her emotion. Even if the child is sick, the mother gets more sicker in her spirit. When a child is being injected or vaccinated, is the mother feeling the pain of it? Because she has deep within, graven in her heart, her child. When the child goes off to college, the boy is 20, 
And yet the mother is grieving. Lord, protect him, protect him, protect him, protect him. I plead the blood of Jesus. Oh, dear Lord, take. The kid is just having a merry time. Lord, protect him. Keep his way, Lord. It's an edge in the heart of a praying mother. And God says, can a woman forget a suckling child? That she should not have compassion of the son of a womb? Yea, even if they forget, yet, yet, yet I will never forget you. Why? Remember the priest? Here's a high priest. And now turn to verse 49. And he says in verse 16, the next verse, Behold, look, I have graven you upon the palms of my hands. They, your walls are continually before me. It is rather strange that God has the word graven. That simply means cut. That simply means cut through or engraven the names of people in his heart. How could God do that? It just simply means God is pierced in his hand, that your walls are continually before him. How could that be? Because when you turn to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 28, specific, God is very specific. He says, you shall not make any cuttings in your skin for the dead nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. No tattoos. No cutting of the flesh. Simply that. And yet, let's go back to 49 and verse 16. God says, I have cut my hand for you. I have engraven you in my hand. I have pierced my hand for you. When did that happen? How did that happen? John chapter 19, verse 39. Look what happens here. When Jesus was on the cross, uh, 37, John chapter 19 and verse 37. Again, another scripture said, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. While he was on the cross, they pierced his hands, they pierced his feet. And while he was on the cross, a spear was pierced to his side and outflowed blood and water, saved by the blood, sanctified by the Spirit of God. Give the Lord a clap offering. What I find so important is this aspect of God is hands. And when you look at Jesus Christ, his hands are pierced. Every now and then you have people coming and saying, I'm the second coming of Christ. There's a guy in the Middle East, he says, he is the Messiah. Come, I want to pierce your hand. Pierce your feet if there is no pierced mark. I like to pierce your side, and then I will recognize you are the Messiah. Otherwise, get away. The Lord who will come will always have his hands pierced. Thomas, he was in the upper room. Uh, he wasn't there in the upper room 
when Jesus walked in, the other disciples were there. He just walked through the walls. And they could not believe. So when Thomas was there, they said to Thomas, and he said, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe until I touch the nail-pierced hand and his side. And Jesus did come, and Thomas reached out his hand, touched the nail-pierced hand, touched the place where the spear had pierced, and this is what he said, my Lord, my God. I want you to know this, my friend. When you see this, this is awesome. This becomes what would be the second coming in all his glory, in all his zenith. The word sparkling in a celestial glory. John had actually a few days ago, while he was alive and seated at the upper room, had almost put his head at his chest. Now in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, he's taken in the spirit to heaven. And he sees the Lord in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, and he falls as he was dead because he couldn't even understand the sparkle. It just frightened the life of that man. And the Lord said, rise. He was shaking. Remember, this is, this is the Lord in all his glory. But there's something that John writes in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Listen to what he says. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Why? Because we had rejected the one. They're looking for the first coming, as, but actually this would be second coming. I like their own prophet writing about this. When you read in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 of that day that will happen, and listen to what Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 says, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is bitterness of his firstborn. Check the word firstborn. They will cry because of the bitterness of one that is the firstborn. When you go back to Genesis chapter 48 and verse 13, Joseph brings two of his children to Jacob to be blessed. And Jacob places the hand of Jacob on Manasseh, who's the firstborn. And then his left hand on Ephraim, who is the secondborn. Jacob is blind, so Joseph is trying to help him. Nay, nay, my son. And what Jacob does is crisscrosses his hand, and he blesses Ephraim, the secondborn, and puts his left hand on the firstborn Manasseh, God crisscrosses his hand. It should be the firstborn that should have the double. It is the firstborn that gets the firstborn blessing. But again, look at how God crisscrosses. When Jacob was born, remember, he's not the firstborn. His brother Esau was the firstborn. And yet, it was Jacob, the secondborn, that was blessed, and not Esau. 
Or look at going to his father Isaac. Ishmael was the firstborn, and God crisscrossed his hand and reaches out to Isaac. Do you get what I'm saying? Look at this word, Manasseh was the firstborn. Who was the firstborn? The Lord Jesus talked about this parable of a prodigal son. He's the secondborn. He comes back in repentance and says, Father, I have sinned. There's dancing like nobody's business in the house. The fatted calf and the whole nine yards, the musician, the elder brother comes in and he says, what's going on? The young man has returned. He says, what's going on here? He was wrought, angry. My father, it looked like the father was a stranger to him, yet living in the same house and never really responding. And yet a prodigal son who was outside the house comes and embraces him, and the father covers him with the rope of righteousness, the ring of authority, and the shoes of peace. Think about it. I want you to remind you just before you take this communion, it's not by works, but by grace. Amen. At the cross, something took place. You find a man saying, forgive me. And the Lord Jesus said, today you shall be with me in paradise. Grace. At the cross, C-R-O-S-S, he crisscrossed his hand. And the firstborn was not blessed. One day that will take place. But he reaches out to what would be the Gentile, you and me, and reaches out and blesses us in grace. You got to stand up and give God a thanksgiving offering and say, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, God. What I want you to know, all of Abraham's blessings is yours because of Jesus. Can you say amen? Receive this revelation. It is a revelation for your elevation. All of what God promised the firstborn is mine. All of Abraham's blessings is mine Why Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and verse 14. You may be seated. I want you to realize something very important before we break bread. When you turn to Joshua chapter 4 and verse 24, something happens. In this passage, that all the people, this is what God says, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of God that it is mighty to save them, that you may fear the Lord your God, that all the people of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it's mighty that fear the Lord God forever. What should you do? He goes on to say in verse 7, this is what you need to do, a memorial. Bring in the stones, not only in the bank, Joshua chapter we just talked about it in, and in verse 4 and verse 7, the, the big plaster of stones here and stones in the water. Why? They're going to be a memorial. So when children ask why, he says, because God saved you. The water was crossing. God saved you through. No matter what is, the hand of God is able to stop the water. The hand of God is able to see you through. You had problems in your life, and God reached out and said, stop to the enemy. Satan wanted to destroy you, and he pushed the enemy back. And in that very moment, he reaches out his right hand and blessed you. We're not worthy, but God be praised and glorified. 
This comes to this passage in Deuteronomy chapter, we don't need to go if we, but Deuteronomy chapter 27, 2 and 3, he's saying, when God is saying, when you cross the river, these should be memorial stones. Why? I'd like you to know why he says that. In chapter 4 of Deuteronomy and verse 9, he says, lest you forget. This is a memorial, lest you forget. The hand of God is so mighty. Who has believed our report? To whom is the arms of the Lord revealed? He was wounded for our transgression. What is he talking about? He's talking about God's Son. And through that marvelous sacrifice, we who are the left hand of God, God reaches out and crosses his hand and gives us all of the heritage. You are not a second class. It doesn't depend on the color of your skin or your American citizenship or whether you are from overseas or wherever you are from. It depends not on race, but on grace. Can I say it again? Not on race, but on grace. God's grace reaches out to us. Let it be a memorial. Now this is the time you need to take your cup. And the Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke chapter 22 and verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Lest you forget. This is what the arm of the Lord has done. This is what the hand of the Lord has done. Last, yesterday I believe, two days ago, it was out of the blue. I met this man after a long time. I reached out to him and did him a favor that nobody would do. I reached out and stretched my hand, blessed him. Blessed him like nobody's business. I was criticized for doing that. I stood my ground and blessed him. At the weakest point of my life, he took my hands and bit it. He took what would be gratitude to be ingratitude, bit the hands, hurt me so badly, tried everything to destroy it and take this church to another church in Brooklyn. Did everything in his power, contacting the wonderful trustees, making them believe this is something wonderful, spread rumors, Behind my back, I did him nothing but good. He was just a nobody. I stretched out my hand, reached out and blessed him, lifted him up, and then he wanted my chair, wanted me out. I'd forgotten until I saw him. I extended the hand of grace. Do you think he was grateful? The reason I say this is God reaches out his hand to you. God reached out his hand to this nation, and what do you think this nation does? Every day, bite the hand of a loving God. This nation has reached the zenith, not because of a people, it is because of God graced in answer to prayer. And now we're doing everything possible to spit at his name, ridicule his name, 
mockery his name to the point that Hollywood says, Jesus F U, a common phrase. It is not coming from Asia. It's not coming from Africa. It's not coming from the Caribbean. It's not coming from the Arab world. It's not coming from the Hindu world or the Buddhist world. It is coming from a people that God graced, given his hand, and we're biting that every day. And we're taking the virtues of God and the grace of God and disgracing it and calling the right wrong and wrong right. We're biting the hands of God. Am I speaking to you today that God has reached out to you in grace? God has reached out to you in mercy. And have you ever recognized the hand of God? Don't despise it. When you take of this cup, who has believed our report? The Lord has bared his hand. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we benefit and every time you take up this communion look up to God and say thank you father thank you father for the hand of God for the lamb of God for Yeshua Messiah who took my place never ever be ungrateful and so this cup of blessing Jesus says do it in remembrance of me because we forget we forget the end of the year we are complaining I wouldn't get this and I we forget the fact God reached out to us healed us gave us job we cried to to God for our children God graced us and now we are saying God didn't do anything look at the troubles I've had my friend you have been so much blessed count your blessing name them one by one it'll surprise you what the Lord has done the greatest is eternity not by us but by the grace of God. As often as you eat this, you do show forth the Lord's death. This cup of blessing, this is a blessing. I want you to join with me as we break up this bread because he was broken for us. He was pierced for us. Blood and water for us. Lest we forget. Can you say thank you, Father? For Jesus. I eat of this. In Jesus' name. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord. To learn more, please visit our website, highlandny.org, or our Facebook page, Highland Church, New York. Until next time, may God richly bless you.